Hi, I'm Phil Liggett and you're listening to the Spokesman Podcast. Welcome to Episode 7 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. This show was recorded Thursday, November 16th, 2006. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is a combination of some of the best cycling podcasts and blogs on the internet. Each show will bring you together some of the most famous voices and writers in cycling for a lively discussion of the current cycling news. And now, here are the Spokesmen. Welcome to another episode of The Spokesman. I'm joined today by Tim Jackson from Mozzie Bicycles. Hi, Tim. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. It is early, but I'm glad to hear you're doing well. Yeah. Also out here on the West Coast, Jeremy Vaught from Triathlon Radio. Hi, Jeremy. Hello. And somebody who has had much more caffeine than we have so far today because he's been up for a little bit longer, Carlton Reed from Cycling News and Views Podcast, as well as Bike Biz Magazine over in the UK. Hey, Carlton. Hi there, how's it going? Very, very well. Well, I've got a full sheet of paper here, lots of things that we need to talk about. So let's just dive right in. And the first one is something that I wish we had had a chance to talk about on The Last Spokesman, but it really broke after we finished recording. Uh, And that is the fact that Eurobike, one of the main trade shows over in Europe from Friedrichshafen, Germany, announced that they are considering a competing show to Interbike here in the United States, and they're talking about doing this in Portland. And this news came out about two weeks ago, and then nothing. But but Tim, you're you're in the industry. What's sort of the buzz about this whole Eurobike challenge? What are people saying? Do they think that this is something that, that can succeed? And do you know anything that the rest of us don't? <laughs> oh, you should know by now that I know nothing, period. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't know anything that, that anybody else doesn't because uh, they haven't really said anything. It's been it's been dead quiet over there at Eurobike Portland since they made the announcement. Uh, no one else has heard anything about exactly what the dates are, uh, what the format's going to be, is there going to be a consumer day or not. So there's there's very little information currently available. Um, I've I've talked to some of the people in Portland and they're very excited about it. If it actually happens, they 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 really don't know. Um, as far as Industry buzz, the biggest thing is why September? Why another show show on the West Coast? It's it's kind of the motives are very confusing at this point. And I I think a lot of people will watch it and see if it actually happens and flies, but there's a lot of skepticism right now. How many shows are you are you personally doing each year? Obviously you've got Interbike, but I don't know if you're doing shows in Canada or, or shows in Europe. Yeah, I'm personally, well, I can't sell in Europe right now because of a trademark dispute, so that that's kind of a bummer. Um, so I don't get to, I don't personally attend Eurobike because it, it, it's not a market that I'm act, actively in. Um, but that said, uh, I want to. Um, there, I, I'm doing the trade show in Canada. I'm doing, obviously, Interbike. Uh, there's the show in Taipei in March, though I don't attend that as an exhibitor. I attend that as uh, you know, meeting with vendors and things like that. So 
uh, Mozzie itself. Then there's the excuse me. There's also the trade show in Australia. So there's 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 a lot of Mozzie being shown around. Uh, but I can't um, imagine my sister brand uh, Haro. They show everywhere. Yeah. But do you, so, do, you, do you think that that the people see a potential value to, to two West Coast shows so close together? I think I think there's question of whether or not there is a value to two shows so close together on the West Coast. So we, we just everybody wants to believe them. that there is, but no one still no one knows what the format's going to be. Yeah, we don't know what their value proposition is going to be and, and what's going yeah. to be involved in, in a show like that. Carlson, exactly. you're a little bit closer to it. Are you hearing anything? By, by closer, Wait. of course, I mean geography. Uh, you're right. Well, it nothing's been said since. It's almost vaporware. You know, one statement was put out, which was very very. Um, antagonistic towards Interbike. Some very strange Germanic things were said. And uh, then nothing since. And I've tried emailing them and asking, are they going to have a public day, for instance? Are they going to have this, this, this? And and no answer. So it's a vacuum at the moment, and uh, it's just speculation, which is, is not really very positive, is it? It's, it's certainly strange. Has there been a buzz in the industry? You know, I remember years ago when, when the, I think it was the Bio Show, came around and because there was a certain buzz in the industry saying, you know, Interbike, you're not doing what we like, you're not doing things that we want, and so we're going to break off and we're going to create our own show. In the end, that failed, but I think that it brought about some changes in Interbike. Has there been a buzz in the industry that, that Interbike needs to make a change? Oh, quite a bit, yeah. And, and you know, I think what's happening right now is a lot of people are looking at this and saying, yeah, we're going to stick it to Interbike and make them change. You know, there's a lot of people who don't like it being in Las Vegas. There's a lot of people who don't like having to deal with the Teamsters and things like that. It, there's, there's, there are small complaints about it, but uh, I think everybody is, is pretty much convinced, or should be, in my opinion, that, that Interbike still, uh, warts and all, is the best bike show that this country has ever produced. Every other show that's come around has fallen off or is of much smaller stature so it, it still represents the, the single biggest event that we have here Jeremy as, as a consumer a cycling consumer like me mm-hmm. um, I, I, I don't know first of all have you, have you ever been to an interbike show I have not okay so if there were if there was a show like interbike whether it's interbike or Eurobike Oregon and there was a consumer day, where, or days where you could go and either walk the, the, the aisles and, and see all the cool new products, the new shiny bits that are out there, uh, or perhaps have a demo day where you could go ride some of these bikes, would that be something that would interest you as a consumer? And do you think, you get to represent our cycling consumers today, do you think <laughs> that that would attract others as well? Other? Other cycling consumers. Oh, um... Well, absolutely. I uh, and we talked about this a little bit in previous uh, shows that 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 is definitely something that would would add value. Um, it would add complexity, of course, but from the consumer point of view, I think that there are a number of people that are just fretish enough that may travel long distances to go to go and check out that kind of thing. I know that. That it would be that it would be interesting, um, and there's a lot of people that want to know what's going to be the next thing coming out in the next six months, and that's exactly what those shows provide. Yeah, I, th- I think it's like going to an auto show. You know, it, it's, it gives you a chance to 
not just see the pretty girls, of course, but also to, to walk around and see the, <laughs> the latest parts, see the latest bikes uh, for yourself. Obviously, we, we did talk about this on a previous show, that it, it does create complexity for the exhibitors. Uh, unfortunately, when you let the public in, you have to lock things down. You have to be a lot more vigilant uh, to make sure that things don't walk away. But, yeah, I think consumers would like that. So, I don't know, Tim, how would you feel about a, an extra day or two where the halls or the aisles are just packed with consumers. Well, there's there's pluses and minuses to that, as you say, and and the biggest uh, point of confusion for most uh, exhibitors from the past, when they're because Interbike did do consumer days in the past, um, is that you have to make sure that you've got the correct pricing information out um, because you know you get the dealer pricing into the hands of consumers and then the information spreads so quickly now and, and it it just creates a headache it's it's not like we're giving away national secrets or anything like that where you know heads are going to roll because you handed out the wrong price sheet it's just one of those added layers of confusion and frustration um, so there's from from the standpoint of putting together small details like that it becomes uh, less it just becomes more complicated I guess but that said, um, for me personally, access to consumers is huge. So having a large array of them at my fingertips is is great. Interesting. You, you've got to yeah. Go ahead. Oh. You, you've got to understand. Eurobike is big. <clears throat> it's much much bigger than Interbike. For instance, the the public day of Eurobike gets almost as many people on that one day as Interbike, which obviously is only trade only, gets the whole time. Right. So Eurobike has money because Eurobike has, has come from almost nowhere in these past five, six years to being this mammoth of a show. They have money to spend. They want to clearly rub uh, Interbike's noses in it. They have their top guy uh, actually lives in, in very close to, to Portland and Oregon for something like six months of the year. So he knows the area and he's been clearly scoped out and, and, and talked to by Portland people to say, look, why don't you have a show here? And uh, that's why it's, it's meant to be happening. Now, whether it will come off, we don't know because of that lack of information. But they certainly have the money to do it. And it's whether that would actually just split the whole U.S. US bike industry, which, which clearly would not be positive. You know what this actually reminds me of is the, the big computer show they used to have in Vegas every year. Um, I can't remember what it was called now. I can't either, but uh, I know Comdex? what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, Comdex. Mm -hmm. and, and people would look forward to that all year round, and that was, that was um, of course, allowing all the consumers in at the same time as everybody else. And that thing was that was huge, and and people would plan for a year on getting over to there. So I, I is if if that's any kind of precedent, that would be a success for sure. Mm -hmm. and, and at least for me, you know, when, when I'm done at the show every day, I like to go out for a ride. I'd much rather ride in Portland than in Vegas, quite frankly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you know, that's one thing. Well, let's let's move on a little bit. Um, and let's talk about this. You know, this isn't a political show or anything, but I wanted to just mention briefly the recent midterm elections that took place here in the United States. And just wait, sort of there were elections? Yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you vote multiple times? Oh, jeez. 
You missed it. How come I couldn't vote? No one told me there was nothing on TV. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody calling you up, huh? You know, I'm sorry. I just have to say, you know what's funny about that is that uh, I'm a big TiVo fan, and so I was catching up on a couple of shows last night, and here came all these political ads for, for the various initiatives and propositions here in, in, in California. You know, vote for this, vote yes, vote no. And I thought, did I miss it? So. <laughs> anyway, I, let's talk a little bit about the congressional elections, and that is the fact that, uh, as, as I think everybody knows, um, the, the Democrats took over the majority in the United States Congress from the Republicans. And there was an article in the Oregonian, speaking of Oregon, uh, the newspaper online, that was saying that there was a good chance that the election might cause some favorable things to occur in the United States as far as legislation in favor of cycling. And I just wanted to sort of get your opinions on this. Anybody have an idea of, of whether or not they think that this is something that will, will happen, that just simply a new majority in Congress might bring some more money to cycling infrastructure? For sure, it, it, it's, it's happening. Jim Oberstar, um, he's already... Uh, the top Democrat in the, on the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. So he's the shoe-in. If, if the Democrats are, are clearly in uh, the majority, then that's the guy who's going to get the top post. Yeah. And he's a cycle buff. And the other two guys mentioned in uh, that newspaper report, which uh, Pito DeFazio and uh, Earl Blumenauer uh, are the other guys. Now, Blumenauer and Oberstar are very well known to the U.S. Uh, bike trade. They're, they're huge supporters of, of cycling. DeFazio, that's the first time I've heard his name um, brought up, but he's meant to be a former bike mechanic and uh, also a supporter of cycling. So uh, whenever you get people in positions of authority who can influence things, it, it's great when they happen to be from your little interest group and uh, here's a bunch of cyclists. What do we think that they can do? How can they help cycling in the United States? Uh, any ideas there? Hopefully they'll, they'll be able to redirect some funds towards building the kind of infrastructure that needs to exist for cycling to really take off in this country. Um, with, without that kind of infrastructure, without uh, safe roads for children to ride on or for adults to commute back and forth on, cycling is going to continue to be marginalized as a real deal activity or a viable op uh, option for commuting to back and forth to work. Uh, the bike industry is mired in that problem. Without the infrastructure, the industry is only going to grow so much because people do not like the idea of taking their lives in their hands just to ride five miles to the office. If they have safe bike lanes to ride in, preferably ones that are separated from car traffic, I think, and many believe, that more people will take up cycling, especially as gas prices continue to climb, though they're currently on the, on the recent decline. You know, it's interesting. I, I think that that's, that's a really good point, that, that if you don't have the bike lanes, if you don't have, you know, in a lot of ways, also the awareness that it is dangerous for cyclists out there. I see that on the streets of L.A. all the time, every day when I go out for my ride. But, Jeremy, you're down there in Orange County, where when I ride down there, I mean, I feel like it's such a pleasure because the, the, the bike lanes are huge. Um, do you think that, that, that the money that's been spent in places like Irvine, California and other places down where you are, do you think that that's um, put more cyclists on the road? I, I would imagine so. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, of course, 
when when you're a cyclist, you're a cyclist, and you you ride in whatever you've got to ride in. And so I've ridden in all kinds of stuff, and I've ridden a lot in Phoenix, and they don't have a very good uh, um, cycling areas um, as far as citywide, and um, and there's still plenty of cyclists there. So so I don't know. It, obviously, it can't help. I mean, it can't hurt. I'm sorry. Um, it can't hurt to have cyclists have their own lanes. Um, so um, I don't. I don't. I don't I don't know how how exactly it would it would be a huge boost because we're talking about the federal government here and and yeah I guess they could shoehorn some money into some places but this is it's more of a city kind of a funding thing. Yeah, I think I think that the, the point about whether or not you'll want to take your kids out on the road is is a good one. Um, it is one thing for me to go out and do a ride every night. And like I think, what was the phrase used? Take my life into my hands. But yeah. when it comes to taking my ten-year-old daughter with me, um, you know, it gets I all have, different, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, and I have to, I have to really pick and choose the areas. And I'm training her right now for a, for a week-long ride across California. And we went for a ride yesterday, and I was really very careful about taking her on side streets, and because she's still not confident riding in traffic yet, and I've got to slowly build her up. And here in L.A., man, it's scary to take a ten-year-old out on a bike. Uh, my my best friend lives in LA, and I've ridden with him there. And yeah, you're right. It's uh, anywhere where there's that many cars, it's a scary place to ride a bike. Yeah, absolutely. And so you know, if if there's anything, you know, look, any money that goes toward that would would be great. Of course, you know, money can't solve every problem, but at least right. if we get some some more awareness out of this, I think that that's that's really interesting. By the way, when I was looking at this um, on Earl Blumenauer's website, uh, and again, he's from Oregon. I wasn't aware of this before. I didn't even know that this existed. But apparently, he started what's called the Bipartisan Congressional Bike Caucus. Have you guys ever heard of that before? <laughs> I hadn't until you mentioned it, and that's pretty amazing. It's uh, it's made up of, and this is also interesting, it's made up of 164 members, 118 of whom are Democrats, 45 of whom are Republicans. Any thoughts on that, guys? Without getting too political and, and you know alienating half of our audience, any idea about why that might be? It's just hard to carry oil drums on a bike. <laughs> oh, 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 that's bad. Yeah, then you're going to say something about Halliburton. <laughs> they don't make bikes, I don't think. Uh, Carlton, anything like this exist in the UK? Oh yes, there's the All Party Parliamentary Cycling Group which is a bunch of MPs who get together and probably drink lots of beer and talk about bikes and then once a year they go on this bike ride through London. I went on it earlier this year and they kind of take all the lanes up in the traffic and uh, cycle from from a station wherever they want to be publicizing through to the, the Houses of Parliament. It's funny we got there this year and the police wouldn't let us leave our bikes anywhere so we had police chasing us uh, with all these MPs and, and getting their bikes out of the way of all the nice cars coming through. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You'd think as an MP that you, you wouldn't have that problem. Well, you do. I guess you do. Interesting. Uh, by the way, any, did, did you get any good interviews with, with any of these guys as you were riding with them? I actually had a helmet camera um, with me, which I was trialing that day. So um, I did a podcast, a video podcast on it, in fact. It was my first uh, time with this helmet camera. And yeah, there was a, the, the person is called Emily Thornbury. 
who is the the, the head of uh, this old party parliamentary uh, group on cycling, and I was interviewing her as we we're going along. And there's all sorts of bigwigs come along. It's not just MPs. It's it's the great and good of uh, of British cycling get themselves along there too, and uh, we have a nice day out. That's that's good. I'm guessing that your your video podcast is still available on YouTube. Uh, it, well, I, I think I put that one on YouTube, yes, yes, and it, it hasn't been the most successful one. It, it, it's, it's tended to be uh, bike porn or uh, Phil Liggett. They've, they've been the most popular ones, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the two are not connected. Um, it's the first time Phil Liggett and porn have ever been mentioned in the same sentence, I think. Maybe not the first, but certainly one, one of the few. <laughs> so Carlton to find those people would probably just search on your name Carlton Reed uh, on YouTube yeah yeah you'll probably find me on YouTube just by doing that real good excellent let's move on a second and I, again dear listeners forgive us but this is what everybody talks about in cycling so I know that sometimes you think we, we do this to death but listen I, I was just getting my eyes checked yesterday at the eye doctor and he knows I'm a cyclist and the first thing he wanted to talk to me about was doping so it really seems to me that this is this is the topic that everybody in cycling is talking about I, I wanted to talk about a, a couple of things that came up and I'm just going to mention some topics and then you guys jump in and pick whichever one you like some things that came up recently the the French lab that's involved in the Floyd, uh, Floyd the Floyd Landis uh, affair was recently hacked and there's there's some People got into the computers, and it really seemed to be a, just another attempt to discredit the lab. And there's some some talk out there that there was some, some suspicion, at least by the lab itself, that maybe Floyd Landis's people did that. I personally, I put no stock in that. I think that that's that's not even anything that is likely to have happened at all. But that came up, and that was one interesting thing. Um, the next, I, I want to also get your opinion. Well, you know what? Let's start there. What do you guys think about uh, the fact that the lab was hacked? Does it does it tell us anything? Uh, it tells us that their computer systems aren't very secure, and that raises a ton of suspicion right there. But uh, I don't know that it tells us anything necessarily, other other than they're sloppy, and you know they 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 had to admit to a quote-unquote clerical error where they wrote the wrong number down on one of the samples and you know and I don't know that that raises suspicion definitely the whole situation is just screwy would, would you want your DNA stored by a lab that made these kind of minor mistakes it's always <laughs> worrying minor mistakes yeah. don't they lead on to bigger mistakes and mm. all this huge furore about getting cyclists to store their DNA to prove they're innocent is yeah but look who's storing the stuff come on I'm not going to give my stuff to, to these kind of people and I'll store the DNA for a small fee <laughs> <laughs> yeah. hey, a new business opportunity opens up as we speak exactly exactly mozzie guy's house of DNA storage <laughs> <laughs> and it's got to be little small vials right it can't take up much room they just pick your nose, don't you? And that's that's the DNA. There you go. Yeah. Any comment about the the undertones of, of people making allegations that it was Floyd Landis's people who did this? I don't. Think oh, it's, it's, it's Lakeep. Come on, it's Lakeep. They they say yeah. everything like this. Yeah. And, and 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 where are their sources? We still haven't found any. I think the latest is the the police are saying, "Oh no, we didn't say that. Uh, we said we were investigating." I think it was a leap of faith. 
by the sound of it by a, a, a leaky reporter. And uh, I'm speculating now, which, which of course they do, and uh, they're guilty of. But uh, that's what it's now coming down to, and it, it's just... It was character assassination, as uh, Floyd Landis's uh, PR person said. This was just brought in, and mud was thrown. And luckily, the day after, we have the story of the lab admitting their errors. So at right. least there were, it was, it's one each. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. It's 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 not getting any cleaner. It's as bad as as U.S. politics. I mean, one side pointing a finger at the other. And and the allegations that fly around, it's it's really just, it stinks. Well, what about our friend Dick Pound? Uh, where, <laughs> where, does, where is he standing on all of this? What what is he having to say these days about it? He's getting really really soft in his old age. What did he say yesterday? He was saying that the the WADA uh, would actually look at all the facts first before commenting. And and when I saw that quote, I just well, if you if you know Inspector Clouseau, the the Inspector Clouseau movies, of course. Mm-hmm. where the guy where the guy twitches in his I just I was twitching when I read that comment, my face started twitching, that uh, a, a a guy like Dick Pound could say that's what the the WADA does. They wait for the evidence. It's like, well, that would be a first. Exactly, exactly. Apparently, they don't have enough to say right now. You know, you know, you know, it was funny about that. And again, just going back to the eye doctor again. He says to me, after we got done talking about Landis 15 minutes later, he says, well, well what about Marion Jones? I heard she, she was guilty. And so now let's go back to, to uh, uh, Dick Pound saying he's waiting for all the facts. It sure seemed to me that Wada was, was certainly indicating that they felt that, that Marion was, was, was guilty. Then the, the B sample comes out. And the B sample says, well, no, it's, it's negative. And so instead of Pound saying, well, all right, um, the B sample came back negative, she's, she's innocent, he said, well, now we need to find out why the B sample came back. Yeah, I love that about these doping agencies, how the first mm-hmm. sample, if anything at all comes up in the first sample, then, yeah, you're guilty, There's, there goes your career. Second sample comes back, and it's either less clear or they can't find anything. It's, well, obviously he's still doping. That makes no sense to me. How is it that you can have two disputing samples and yet have one outcome? That doesn't make sense. You know, in the in the in the press conference that Wada held yesterday, uh, where Dick Pound spouted forth, he was uh, asked a question about: uh, Is there any um, possibility in the future we'll only have one test? We'll only have an A test? And instead of him laughing, falling off his chair, and saying, "No way, we have to protect the athletes. That's just will never happen." He he said, "Well, yeah, some people think that would be a good idea." And I was like, uh, "What? <laughs> you are crazy." I mean, this is it's bad enough when the the two Wow, he was really going there and then we lost him. Oh, no. Funny. <laughs> 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 he got so animated he hit the off button. Oh man. All right, hold on. We got to wait. Well, we should hear from him any minute now, I would assume. <laughs> that sucks. <sucks. laughs> Maybe I could just I should just ramble off before he comes back and then he doesn't have a chance to interject. <laughs> Let me see if I can get him back. Hang on. Uh... But I, def- I definitely think that Carlton was on to a point and and that's the fact that y- you can't have one test and not have some sort of validating test to follow it up. It's just impossible to base a person's career and their livelihood off of one test like that. It's bad enough that even with two tests, they're tried in the court of public opinion 
before they ever even get to see what the charges are against them. Yeah. And that's certainly what's happened to a guy like Floyd Landis, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's see if we can get Carlton back. Hang on. Well, we'll see if he we'll see if he comes back. Let's let's move on. Can you hear that? There you are. Ah. You were you were uh, on a tear, and all of a sudden, bam, you were gone. Sorry, yeah, I have no idea. I could sort of hear that I was spouting off, but nobody was listening. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, was that only the first time you've heard that? No, no, you could just hear that deathly silence, like, people aren't listening to me here. I hear that a lot. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'm not connected properly. Maybe that's <laughs> <laughs> Carlton, I don't know what you were saying, but it was really good. <laughs> yeah. You were talking about the single test. Well, Dick Pound was 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 not uh, throwing this out and saying no, there's no way we can be doing that. Uh, don't even ask stupid questions. He was discussing it saying, well, some of our stakeholders think that would be a good idea. Some don't think it'd be a good idea. And for now, I think we'll just keep it as it is. And it's I I, I listen to Dick Pound and I I almost have to stand up because I fall off my chair so much. <laughs> it's just yeah. what is this guy on? that he's not throwing these things out just instantly and coming down strong. Yeah, you it's, know, it's he says he's on the floor. Yeah. Curl up in the fetal position every time he opens his mouth. It's just, probably best. It, why was there a press conference yesterday? Was this part of his, his whole book tour and the publicity for his new book? <laughs> yeah. yeah, what a great title for a book, huh? Um, it, it's the WADA um, elections coming up. Because, um, wonderfully, for some people, um, he actually leaves next year. His tenure is up, and they've got to get new people in. But every uh, few months, they have these water conferences. And so there's one happening uh, on uh, Sunday and Monday. And uh, these conference calls are, are put in place for journalists to ask questions at the time. For instance, the last one was on these uh, hypoxic tents and stuff. And this one... Uh, was a whole lot of boring stuff on WADA regulations and what have you. And then it came on to these questions about uh, should we just have an A test instead of an A and B, t B test. By the way, Carlton was talking about the name of the book. This is the shortest title you've ever heard. It's called <laughs> Inside Dope, How Drugs Are the Biggest Threat to Sports, Why You Should Care, and What Can Be Done About Them. <laughs> and uh, what you know, it's interesting, I just clicked on Amazon to find out the name of the book. And, and I don't know if this is a commentary on, on Dick Pound's writing, but you can, you know, they always give you a combo deal on Amazon. So with, <laughs> with Dick Pound's book, you can buy his book with the MLA Handbook for Writers of Research Papers. <laughs> I don't know what that says, but... Uh, they have a chapter on basing theories on no evidence. <laughs> well, I'll have to check that out. Um, so while we're talking about doping, uh, since we had to go there... Um, Yvonne Basso's found a ride for next year. He's Basso's gone disco. Um, David Miller, is, as we all know, he's he's uh, his his suspension is over and uh, he's back to winning back. stages. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's going on with Tyler Hamilton? I thought that his uh, his suspension was over. What, what's up with him? Is he finding a ride? Yeah. Well, there's rumors that he's going to find a ride, and it's going to be Russian. The Tinkoff uh, team, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But. Lo and behold, the UCI and WADA are still up in arms about him writing for anybody. Even though he served his suspension like a good boy, he didn't cop a plea. I wonder if that has anything at all to do with it. I had a conversation this week with someone about the fact that it, it appears that if you get caught 
confess, serve your time, you're back to racing. Al almost the, the day your suspension is done. But if you fight for your name and your rights, forget it. They're not going to let you back in. This is Spanish Inquisition. This is Reds Under the Bed. This is every conspiracy theory there's ever been. Uh, there needs to be a sociologist actually analyzes Dick Pound, Wada, and the whole anti-doping scene to see all of the different dynamics that are uh, the Salem witch trials, all of these different witch hunt type things, and the characteristics of each, and how you can marry that up it, almost exactly with everything that happens with anti-doping. The hysteria, the lynch mob mentality, facts suddenly taken as, uh, oh, as truthful, just the, the very fact they're mentioned. Um, professor of sociology would be very wise to, to do a, a, a study on this, I'm sure. I think he'd run from the room screaming, personally. <laughs> so, I, I just I find it laughable that... Uh, I, I shouldn't say laughable, because that indicates a sense of humor. But I, I, it, it's appalling to me that Tyler... And this is not because he's an American, for people who are listening outside of, the, out of this country. I find it appalling that Tyler is treated the way that he is when you have writers like... Millar, who I like, who is essentially given carte blanche to, to race again, and Richard Viranc, who is upheld as a, a national hero in France. And he lied and said, no, I didn't do it. No, I didn't do it. No, I didn't do it. And over a year later, finally says, well, yeah, I did. Prize in court, and now he's a national hero, and he goes on to win more polka dot jerseys at the tour. I think that that's absolutely appalling. There's a level of, for lack of a better word, unfairness that is just unrivaled. And I, I, it's, it's ludicrous. And, and perhaps to his credit, or, or, or maybe, I don't know, maybe he's, he's not right in doing this. I, I kind of think he's being classy. You know what? Tyler's just going out and doing what Tyler does. He's, right. He's doing the, the Mount Washington Hill climb. He, Jeremy, I think he recently did a triathlon. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he uh, he's raising money for multiple sclerosis. I mean, the the guy seems like a class act. Yes, yes, I would definitely have to agree. Jeremy, any, any news or anything that you can tell us about that triathlon that that, that Tyler did? Well, um, the uh, they were actually going for a a money prize. The the organizers of the race put up. Uh, I believe it was a hundred thousand dollar prize if any team could beat eight hours in an Ironman, um, one of the most difficult Ironmen that there are, and they were going for it. They had a team of world class athletes, obviously, obviously he him and <clears throat> a Kenyan runner, and I can't remember who the swimmer is. Um, and they uh, they actually missed it by fifteen minutes. And actually came in second by 29 <coughs> seconds. So, Didn't their runner have a, a horrible day? He just completely yeah, yeah. towards the end the, of the run. The runner had a tough time. They also um, um, there was a, they made a mistake in uh, uh, or Tyler made a mistake in, I believe in how they how he came into or came out of the uh, transition area. So they made him they made the runner stand there for four minutes. <laughs> before he could take off, or before he was actually out on the course, they had to track him down and stop him uh, um, to 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 uh, make up for the penalty. And uh, 
and and Tyler says that uh, he hopes that they offer it next year so that, that uh, one it'll raise awareness for that race and uh, and the, and that they would like to go for it again they think that that it's definitely within their grasp but he had a better, good time a little better coordination a little better teamwork maybe next time yeah yeah but he did talk about that uh, 112 miles is an awfully long ways for a time trial yeah, yeah. <laughs> That was his longest one ever by That's about a little double. Than, yeah, a little longer see, than the time trials you get at the tour. Yeah. Do you see who the Do you see who the team was sponsored by as well? No. Howard Jacobs, the lawyer. <laughs> How very American. Really. really? Uh, yeah. I love it. It's interesting. You know, speaking of <laughs> speaking of, of endurance races and and cyclists, I guess we have to mention. Uh, Lance Armstrong's participation in the New York City Marathon, yeah. which he That's said good. was the most difficult thing he'd ever done, which blows me away. Three weeks of Tour de France, it seems to me, would be the most difficult thing. Three hours on your feet, I mean, listen, I'm not a runner, but I would think the Tour <laughs> would be the hardest. Uh, I can't run more than a couple blocks without breaking down completely, so I would have to agree with him that running 26 miles is probably pretty darn hard. I have a, I, I, as an athlete, I have an awful lot of respect for marathoners. Mm-hmm. I just, I can't even imagine what they put their bodies through to do that event. I mean, that's why they only do a couple of them in a year. It's didn't, amazing. Didn't he also say because he wasn't in in top physical shape for this type of event, um, it would have been easier if he would have had more specific training for longer and they said that would have added to the ease, but of course this isn't his job like cycling was, so he's not going to put that kind of effort into it. So that yeah. added to why it was more difficult. You know, one of the one of the articles that I saw was was comparing his physique as he stood there at the start line to the physique of of the world class marathoners, you know, who are all sort of slight individuals mm-hmm. and, and and don't have those massive legs that a guy right. like Lance Armstrong has. Right. So I don't right. think it was. Did he have anybody? Go ahead. So did he have anybody drafting him or bringing him water <laughs> bottles or you need a team come on you need a team behind you and in front exactly. of you where, where are your domestiques Johan well, wasn't there yeah <laughs> he wasn't wearing a radio in his ear yeah <laughs> but, but that's right he did have some world class marathoners who were pacing him and helping along through the race and, and his goal was to do it in under three hours and I think he just beat it by, by seconds if I'm not mistaken yeah and I, I thought one of the more interesting tidbits of gossip around that as well was that he actually sought advice on how to run a marathon from his ex-wife because that's what she does. Mm. Yeah. She actually writes for Runner's World. Yeah. Interesting. So, well, I, I, don't, I don't think that I'm going to be doing a marathon anytime soon, but congratulations yeah, to for getting that done. <laughs> I can't run 2.6 miles. You know, I've, I've said this before. When I was in high school, I played, I played football for four years. And running was a punishment that was doled out by the coaches. If you did something wrong, you'd have to, have to exactly. run a lap. If you missed exactly. practice, you had to run a mile. If, yeah. uh, we had a thing where if we lost a game, we had to run sprints for uh, one sprint for every point that we lost by. And so to me, uh, when I think of running, I think pain is punishment. So I'm not about you know, to do it. And I, this, isn't, this isn't a running podcast, obviously, <laughs> but a lot of runners complain about that. Because people have these mental hang-ups from running because of uh, sports in their youth, and people just they think of it as as punishment rather than something that they can enjoy. 
Well, so. I, I still think of it as punishment. I'm, yeah. I'm, nobody's going to change my mind. <laughs> <laughs> hey, real quick, I, I know we've, we're, we've gone a little bit long. We're, we're at about 40 minutes right now, but I just wanted to bring something up that, that actually, Carlton, you brought to my attention because a few shows ago, I, I, we said some things about carbon bikes. And I think that we may have rubbed some people the wrong way. I know I got a couple of emails from people saying that, that we were uh, that we, we gave carbon the short shrift. And number one, to be clear, I ride a carbon bike every day. But Carlton, you found some some posts um, on the Bike Biz forum that were mm -hmm. talking about carbon bikes. Why don't you tell us what people are saying, and, and maybe we can just chat briefly about frame materials. Well, it was a it was a guy who's actually spent 25 years in the uh, research and development in the nuclear industry and uh, he also had um, lots and lots of hands-on with uh, with composites and his main beef to begin with was stop calling them carbon it's not carbon it's composites you know carbon is just one part of the mix but then he came into all this stuff about you know where you, you can't damage them uh, as easily as people think and it, it, he was coming down to you know first generation frames maybe five uh, years ago, ten years ago, yeah, sure, they did do funny things, but these third generation frames, no, no, they're really good, and you're not going to damage them, and uh, don't be so worried. I think one of the interesting threads in that dialogue too, Carlton, that you pointed out was that uh, he makes a very good point that it's it's not just the carbon that's a big part of the ride of a frame, it's the the resin that is used to hold it all together. If you have really good high modulus carbon but you're using a crappy resin or a crappy bonding process then the best material in the world isn't going to do you any good mm. what about what about uh, manufacturing uh, well number one you know one of the things that, that, that I think we talked about was the fact that you have to be concerned that you know you, you're going to get indented or cause some delamination to occur and, and one of the things and, and listen maybe it's urban legend maybe it's a myth you know, I, I won't put my carbon bike on like a rear-mounted bike rack because I'm concerned that as I strap it to those those poles across the top tube, that I'm going to end up having in, in the long term a weakening of the top tube in those in that area. What do you guys think? Is that a is that a myth? Is that not true? Should I? I think that's myth. I mean, at stoplights, just like I would. 20 years ago on my steel frame, I sit on the top tube of my frame while I wait for the light to change. And, uh, you know, I'm 200 plus pounds, and I've, I've, I've yet to cause a frame to crack there. Um, that said, it, is it a good idea to throw all my weight on the top tube? Not at all. But carbon is a lot more resilient than, than many people think it is. And, you know, I'm a, a huge steel fanatic. That's still my preferred personal frame material. Um, but I, I got to tell you that, that uh, I'm coming around to carbon. It used to be that, that I, the, the bike that I'm riding now is the first carbon bike I've had that I haven't snapped. So I've, I've got a bad relationship historically with carbon. But now a far better material and quality than it ever did. It's amazing what you can get carbon to do now. Okay, hold on, I'm going to interrupt everybody for just one second. Carlton, you're breathing really heavy into your microphone. <laughs> Sorry. He got excited about carbon. <laughs> I've just been downstairs, actually, to answer the door. Oh, okay. And uh, I've ran around the whole front of my house because a, a, a courier came, and I'm desperately waiting for some apple stuff. And uh, it wasn't the apple stuff. 
Sorry. sorry about that. So yes, yeah, so I'm just I'm really just excited about carbon. You're right. <laughs> okay, so let's see. We talked about carbon. We talked about steel. Where was I going with this? I was going someplace. Oh, I well, know I where I was going. One of the things was point of origin for carbon. yeah. That's that's one exactly the, right. the, the myth of manufacturing. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second, Carlton. Seriously, move it away from your mouth if you can. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what about, you know, let's talk about more myths when it comes to carbon. And, and one of those myths is uh, people wonder, gee, if I'm buying an Italian bike, uh, an American bike, or a Chinese bike, am I, am I getting better, uh, am I getting a better frame because it's got an American brand name on it? Am I getting a better frame because it's got an Italian brand name on it? Aren't most of these bikes pretty much made in the same factories anyway? Absolutely. There, there's, there's a lot of, of myth in manufacturing uh, anyway. You know, and hey, I, my brand is, is an example of it. Uh, it's a brand with, uh, you know, Mazzi Bicycles. It's got an Italian heritage. They've been in the U.S. since the late 70s, early 80s. We design all the bikes here in California, but they're manufactured in Taiwan. And some people uh, take issue with that because they feel that they're being misled. But the fact of the matter is, is that the bulk of the bikes in the cycling industry are produced elsewhere. Uh, many of the bikes that that come out of Italy, with the revered names that you see, aren't produced there. Uh, the cost of manufacturing just makes it prohibitive to be competitive on the global market. Uh, I would love to still be able to hand produce frames in our warehouse, but. The cost of manufacturing would mean that I would sell three bikes a year because no one else would be able to afford them. And to be able to grow a brand, you have to do things like produce them elsewhere. That said, the production quality of materials coming out of the, the Asian countries is fantastic. It's, it's absolutely incredible. And who do you want building your carbon bike? Someone who just started building carbon bikes a year or two ago or someone who's been doing it from day one and has built thousands if not millions of them yeah sure it's a good point two things that, that sort of come to my mind here number one from my days in the bike business I've been in a lot of these factories and you know one of the things that I did was I was I was taking Taiwanese products for the most part and just changing the way that they were marketed in order to make them more palatable to consumers because what I saw was the products whether they were complete bikes, frames, or simple components, the products that were coming out of Taiwan were, were top quality, despite whatever, again, myths or biases people may have, they were top quality products. And just simply changing the way that they were marketing made them palatable to consumers and, and gave people trust in the product. So putting an Italian name on a, a frame, for instance, coming out of, of Taiwan will give people that trust that they need, whereas if it had a Chinese name on it, they might not buy that exact same bike, came off the same factory made by the, pardon me, off the same assembly line, made by the same hands, but yes. the simple name is the difference, and I think that, that, I suppose there's a bit of a cultural bias there. Absolutely there is, and, and it's unfortunate, but it's just a, a, a reality in the, yeah. in the marketplace, um, you know, and Granted, you can get uh, Chinese or Taiwanese-made carbon frames that uh, <coughs> there's no way I would ride. 
Mm. They're just they ride so poorly and you have to worry about the bond strength and things like that. But if you're dealing with a reputable builder, you're going to get a very good bike. Now, what about the fact, and this is the second thing I wanted to bring up, you know, at, at Interbike, I rode a bunch of the bikes that were that were there. Um, mostly carbon was what I, what I ended up riding. And there were some bikes that rode like a dream, and there were other bikes that rode like a wet noodle. Um, and it, it, some of it was the brand name that was on the bike, and I don't think that it was it was it was a subjective thing. Objectively, there was definitely a difference in the way that they rode. So I think that what people really need to look at when they're looking at the carbon bikes, not so much the name per se, but they need to look at the way that it's been designed and how it feels when they ride it. People yes. ask me all the time, you know, what bike should I buy? Well, the first thing I say is, go ride bikes because mm-hmm. there's no one right answer to that question for every person. Exactly. And it's it's a matter of design and materials. Um, for example, I've, I'm currently testing a prototype from a, a vendor or a potential vendor and uh, it's from a Chinese manufacturer and I am floored with how well this thing rides. And even even I, who know the difference between good and bad carbon and, and know that geography means nothing, even I, when I got the sample and first looked at it, thought, yeah, it's a nice bike, but it's it's Chinese carbon, it's really inexpensive, how's it going to ride? I went into it with low expectations, and it has far exceeded my expectations, and I've thoroughly enjoyed putting in many miles over the past month on that bike. So There's an in-joke in the, in the bike industry where when people with the same frame or the same component, but it's been badged differently from different companies, when these are tested by, I won't name names, but bike magazines, uh, they get very, very different test scores, very, very different comments from exactly the same people. And it tickles companies when they see these reviews side by side and they think, well, that, that's the exact same frame, the exact same component, but with different badges on. So how come that journalist got that so wrong and mm-hmm. so different? So what you were saying before about brand perception, all these can have a huge difference. And it, it, you maybe should go and ride bikes with with a blindfold on, um, not not literally, but certainly don't pay so much attention to just the brand name every single time. Sometimes it means good things, like these people definitely make their bikes in the right way. Other times, when it's when it's a, a don't want to be too rude to anybody, but when it's a rebadging effort, it doesn't make that much difference. Yeah, I mean, let's let's face it. I I would trust uh, a Colnago made in China uh, any second because I know how it's designed and who is designing it and what their ride philosophy is all about. Ernesto Colnago would not allow those bikes to be made anywhere if it wasn't going to ride like a Colnago. So the fact that he has Chinese-made carbon now doesn't mean that all of a sudden his bikes are going straight down the toilet. They're just less expensive. That's all it means. They're still a fantastic ride. So what's the lesson for the consumers, the people that are listening here, uh, when if they, if they like carbon and they want a carbon bike, is there, is there a lesson for them? Number one, I think that, 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 that lesson number one is probably carbon composites are a bit more resilient than, than maybe we may have let, been, led them to believe. But, but right. what's the lesson for them when they go shopping? What should they be looking for? 
A Mazzy bike, is it? Is it Mazzy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the checks in the mail, Carlton. Well, uh, hey, you've just been really nice at Colnago, so I thought I'd kind of I'd throw it back at you. Ah, uh, thank you, thank you. Now, the the first thing that I I always point out to consumers is like you test ride everything, but remember that you get what you pay for. Sometimes price is too good to be true. If you're looking at a carbon bike that's got really nice parts on it, but it's unbelievably cheap, there's a reason. The cost of parts is pretty fixed, so I'm going to pay for parts pretty much what any other manufacturer is going to pay for parts, so the cost is going to change based on the frame. So if you're looking at a bike that's super cheap with great parts, think about that. There's a reason why it's super cheap. Some some components are wrapped. They'll be aluminium with a, a, a composite outer. So this is one of the ways of you can't just look at a frame or look at a component and think, wow, that's carbon. It might not be carbon throughout. It's it's a lot of small prints here. Absolutely. I saw some great frame cross sections from some of the builders at, at Interbike where they literally would, would cut a frame into pieces and then show you what was inside and it was mm-hmm. quite illuminating. Yeah. Yeah, there were the pictures that were floating around this year of uh, carbon frames that were cut in half and forks that were cut in half that were stuffed with newspaper. <laughs> wow. I That's might add that it was Chinese newspaper. <laughs> and not the Oregonian with all that news about the cycling. That's what it should be. If you're going to do it, do it right. If you're going to do it, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, they should ride the bike. They should, uh, you know, and make sure that it feels good to them. And I think that's good. That's good advice, no matter what frame material material you're looking at. They should um, look at the price and look at comparably equipped bikes to see whether or not this is a crazy price that that would would make them go, hmm, I wonder if that's the right thing. Anything else that they should look at? I mean, the reputation of the company has to be important. Yeah, reputation of company has to be important. I. When talking to consumers, I try not to get caught up in in brand issues just because, well, you know, I represent a brand. Um, But I I always try to point out, take the time to uh, test ride as many bikes as you can, but to also take the time with the retailer to tell them the kind of riding that you're going to do. Get fit to the bike. Take, Take that little extra time to make sure that whatever bike you get, whoever it's made by, whatever the material, that it that you're set up on it to be comfortable and to thoroughly enjoy your purchase. Because otherwise, you can buy a $7,000 bike that's got every last bit of unobtainium on it, and you're going to be incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah, Mm. you don't want to be going around where your neck is killing you, your knees are killing you, your back is killing you, and you're wondering why you just spent all that that money. I did a... uh, a charity ride in April in Texas, and I uh, rode with a consumer for a while who was uh, just in agony halfway through this ride, and it was a 100-mile day, and halfway through the ride, he thought he wasn't going to make it to the final destination. And at one of the rest stops, I took five minutes to adjust his saddle position and tilt his bars a different angle, and by the time he got to the final destination, he was just so happy that I took just five minutes to get him set up a little bit better, and that's all it took. So there you have it, people. If you're uncomfortable, figure out where Tim's going to be riding. Find the guy on the Mozzie bike and meet him at the rest stop. <laughs> Guys, I want to thank you well, very much. This has been a, a really interesting show. I think that, that the listeners are really going to enjoy it. Um, why don't we let everybody know where they can contact 
each and every one of us, starting with Carlton. Carlton Reed, R-E-I-D, at Mac.com is my email address. The podcast is on iTunes or other places, and it's Cycling News and Views. And then my daily writings are on BikeBiz.com. Tim, where can they find you? In multiple places, but uh, I, Carlton did a good thing there, so I'm going to do the same thing. You can reach me personally uh, via email at tjackson at mozzybikes, that's M-A-S-I, bikes, Dot com. I love to hear from people. And they can uh, read the Mozzie Guy blog, or they can check out my bike marketing blog at uh, Shut Up and Drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> I like that very much. And uh, Jeremy, where can they find you? Okay, Jeremy was there. Uh-oh. Well, I'll tell you where you can find Jeremy. Jeremy is at triathlonradio. Can you hear me now? Dot- there you are. Jeremy, where can we find you? Sorry about that. Um, email is triathlonradio at gmail.com and triathlonradio.com is my podcast as well as the uh, beginnertriathlete.com um, podcast at uh, beginnertriathlete.com Very good. And Jeremy's got a little bit of a cold if you can't hear it, so let's everybody wish him a speedy recovery. It's that time Thank of year. you. And uh, I'm David David Bernstein from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast. You can email me at thefredcast at gmail.com and my website is www.thefredcast.com and you can find the podcast there or go to iTunes and search for the Fredcast. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. I think that uh, everybody's going to enjoy the topics we talked about today. We'll be back again with another show in a couple of weeks and I think we're going to have some some other guests joining us which should be a lot of fun in the meantime to all the listeners get out there and ride